Welcome to the LI Law Podcast. We feature legal issues and developments which affect Long Island residents and business owners. I'm your host, Sahava Schechter. Our guest on this 58th episode is Daniel A. Johnston Esquire, Principal Attorney of Johnston Law LLC, a law firm on Long Island focused on commercial litigation, complex criminal defense, and the cannabis industry. Dan also serves as general counsel for Gotham Growth Corp, a processing facility seeking licensure under the new cannabis law. Please check out the show notes for Dan's contact information and keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. So let's get right into it, Dan. Nine of the 13 towns on Long Island have opted out of allowing the legal sale of marijuana. The four which opted in are Riverhead, Brookhaven, Babylon, and Southampton. Let's explore the current laws and the effects on our Long Island communities and residents. So first, Dan, what is the New York State law now concerning the sale or possession of cannabis? And when we say cannabis, is it fair to, to define that as marijuana? Uh, it is. There's uh, been a push from certain communities in the last uh, several years to kind of remove the term marijuana, given it has uh, some negative connotations. Uh, the, the push has been to use the word cannabis where possible. Um, so where it stands now is a little different depending on your circumstances. So if you've got a medical card, you're good to go. You can walk into a medical dispensary, buy what you need, call it a day. If you're someone who wants to use recreationally, uh, believe it or not, you are perfectly fine to purchase from whoever you want under the law, uh, as long as you're underneath the personal thresholds of three ounces of flour or 24 grams of concentrate, which means even if you go to your street corner dealer and buy two ounces off of them, you as the purchaser have committed no crime. You are acting completely within the law. The seller is violating the law, but that's a separate issue. Well, wait, so can we for, talk about that for a second? Can you sure. have... Can you have a transaction where only one party to the transaction is co committing a transgression? Is that what the law allows? Meaning the purchaser, a, even if there's a police officer watching, the purchaser wa uh, the purchaser walks away free and only the seller has to face the consequences? That's exactly what the law says. The law says the purchaser, as long as they are underneath the threshold limits of how much you can have personally, you're committing no crime. The law specifically exempts. It says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, the following acts will not be considered unlawful. And that includes possessing, transporting, purchasing, or obtaining up to three ounces of flour or 24 grams of concentrate. So even if there was an officer watching the transaction take place, they could watch you hand someone money and watch the other person give you two ounces of flour. And they will, you know, if they were even interested in pursuing it, uh, they would only be citing the person who was selling. They wouldn't even be able to take the flour away from you. Very interesting. And I just want to ask, is this per the, the amounts that you're talking about, the quantities, is this per transaction? So if you buy now and half an hour, if you buy again, uh, an amount under that threshold, there's no problem either? As long as you don't have it on you. Uh, if I want to go out and buy three ounces and then I either, you know, I give it to my wife or I give it to somebody else or I drop it off at home and then I go back out and I purchase another three ounces. Under the law, I'm 
not doing anything wrong. Okay, so the, the, the guiding issue here is possession. How much is on your person if you are stopped, right? That's the question? Yes. Okay, yep. and I, I just want to ask you if you could explain a little bit about how this law came to be, who proposed it, um, it's a New York state law. So what, what is the background for this law? A real consideration about three years ago. Um, the bill has changed over time. Uh, it was originally a bill that was coming out of the governor's office. Uh, but what ended up happening during the course of you know, the legislative session where this passed is you had two competing versions of the bill. You had the governor's proposed version and then one that was uh, proffered up by the legislature. And the I one proffered up... Can I interrupt? When you say governor, you, you're referring to Andrew Cuomo, I believe? I'm yes, I'm referring to Cuomo. Okay. Um, so when this bill passed, there was two competing versions of the bill. Uh, the governor's was not as favorable to business and also did not have the wide breadth of social equity provisions that the current legislation does have. Um, thankfully, the version that was proffered up by the legislature was the one that passed and Cuomo didn't veto it. So that's the version that became law. And it's got a, a much wider variety of provisions to both help small businesses, help people who have previously been damaged by the war on drugs, uh, a lot of different avenues to assist people who are qualified as social equity applicants. And it's generally just uh, across the board for everybody, a more favorable bill to the businesses and consumers. Okay, can we? Can I ask you, um... If, if the bill was passed in Albany, how did it enjoy uh, bipartisan support? Did one party push the bill and, and another party oppose it? H how did it come about? Oh, it's always been a Democratic push in New York. And even when it passed, it was primarily a Democrat voted bill. Um, Republican Party's generally been against the whole concept. Uh, you're starting to see that shift, uh, not just in New York, but across the country. But at the time that this passed, it was almost universally a Democrat bill. Okay. And so now let's let's shift. I, I know your practice deals with helping companies become licensed so that they can sell. Um, let's talk about how a company would start that process. How is it onerous? Is it expensive? Do, you know, what are the advantages of using a lawyer as opposed to, I don't know, can you do it yourself? Can you speak to that? Sure. So is it going to be onerous? Is it going to be expensive? Yes and yes, uh, with some exceptions. If you are coming in not as a social equity applicant, um, you, you're going to be doing pretty much everything on your own, as opposed to if you're able to qualify as a social equity applicant, you not only get preference in terms of how quickly your application gets decided, your application gets priority, you have access to an incubator program that will assist you that's state-funded to not only get licensed, but also to help start up and build your business in the right way. You're going to have access to state-funded loans that are low or zero interest. We have to see how that shakes out, but a provision provides for that in the bill. Uh, it cannot be overstated how much of a benefit it is to be considered social equity in New York if you're pursuing a license. Okay, so um, let's talk about social equity because you've mentioned that numerous times. And Obviously, there's a benefit, but what, what does that mean? If you are a member of a minority, what, what can you define that for us, please? 
Sure. New York has a kind of unique approach to defining social equity because there's a base level of do you qualify as social equity? And then there's the second tier of within that group, there, there's, there's an even preferred group. Uh, so the base level is a couple different uh, communities. One is minority-owned businesses. Another is women-owned businesses. Another is um, distressed farmers, disabled veterans. Um, you know, there, there's large groups that would, would qualify for that base level consideration of being social equity. And then at the second level, uh, for more preferential treatment, uh, you have subgroups within those categories. So if you happen to live within a zip code where there's been a disproportionate effect of the war on drugs, so higher arrest rates for marijuana previously, uh, if you are someone who has a previous marijuana arrest under what used to be the 221 series under the criminal law, um, there, there's a couple different considerations that give you basically even higher priority. Uh, so that's that's kind of the the rough sketch of, of how New York is doing it, uh, which is unique to New York. Well, let's talk about things that are unique to New York and how many companies are already licensed. How, what can you tell us about the unique New York structure and how many have successfully been, been licensed to this point? Under the new law, none. Uh, if you're talking about the medical marijuana law, it's 10. And it started out with only five back in 2014. In 2017, they added in an additional five. Uh, they are under a different law. Under the current law, they're going to, those medical providers who had access to the whole article, when I say that, I mean, they're doing the cultivating, the processing, the distribution, and the retail. They have access to that entire vertical. They're going to continue to enjoy that privilege, but under their own unique license under the new, new law, which is called, they're a registered organization. Uh, so they're going to be the only ones outside of micro businesses that have access to the entire vertical. So they're going to be the only ones who have access to the entire vertical at large commercial scale. So wait, um, if, you, if you have access to the, the total vertical, I would think it would be more cost effective and you could probably sell your product less at a less expensive price or is it, are the prices going to be um, stabilized or regulated by New York State? How is that going to work? You're absolutely right that it does give an advantage that they're going to be able to, if they own the entire vertical, they can probably produce goods at a lower price at the end of the day to the consumer than someone who is only occupying one part of the vertical. Um, but then let alone the fact. Against, doesn't that go against what you just said about so the whole issue of social equity and how there are companies which are preferred, but it doesn't seem if you're at a disadvantage and maybe don't have access to that whole vertical, how do you compete with the conglomerates who are using economies of scale to keep their prices very, um, you know, very competitive? Uh, I didn't even finish telling you all the wonderful advantages the medical providers have over your average licensee, because uh, we're, we're not even touching on the fact that if you are a medical marijuana provider and you have a medical dispensary, your clients do not have to pay the same sales taxes that someone would have to pay if they went to a recreational dispensary. That nine and four, the 9% state, 4% local tax that you have to pay at a retail dispensary once they're open for recreational 
you don't pay that at a medical dispensary. So there, there's a number of different angles that, you know, even though New York has these stated goals of wanting to push up small business, social equity applicants, uh, you know, build an industry in New York that is more a conglomeration of smaller players as opposed to a few big winners, um, they haven't fully regulated or legislated out those advantages. And in, in, in a lot of ways, it's, they're preserved, uh, if not enhanced. Uh, the way that you deal with that uh, is twofold. One is if you look at the prices that are in medical dispensaries right now, they're outrageous. If you compare to other states, if you compare to what you would get uh, on quote unquote street prices for the same items, uh, it's, it's wildly expensive and there's nothing they can point to as why. There's, there's not any more complex compliance obligations than there is in California or, or Oregon or, or Colorado. Uh, if anything, it's, it's less developed and less mature than in those states. So the cost of compliance, the, uh, the tax structure, uh, nothing can explain why uh, the prices in the medical dispensaries are so high other than the fact that why not? They, they have the ability to occupy that whole vertical and it's very limited competition at this point in time. So that's what they're doing. They're charging the price they can get from the consumer. It's not a price that's established by free market principles. Once you have a large number of competitors, I think you are going to see those prices come down in an effort to compete. Now, even though they have economies of scale, what you're going to see is a lot of these smaller businesses, even though they can't occupy the entire vertical, you're going to see trade groups form. You're going to see collaborative efforts form, where even if it's not the same company in any way, shape, or form, you're going to have people who enter into long-term supply chain contracts. You're, you're going to see different efforts to um, have de facto vertical occupation. So I may decide, so for instance, I'm working with Gotham, which is a processor, which is really nice because we also, as a processor under the law, kind of have a monopoly on the branding, which is really a big deal to a lot of people who want to go for cultivation or want to go for retail. You know, they're going to want their own brands. But I can enter into maybe not even stated agreements, but I can have preferred vendors through cultivators, I can have preferred retailers where we kind of cooperate to try and keep the prices down and compete. And I think that that's what's going to have to happen in order to compete with the organizations that are pre-existing. It's so interesting because with the war on drugs and the uh, discussions in the past over marijuana, cannabis, et cetera, from the way you speak, Dan, I, I hear much more a focus on business and how this can be lucrative for legal businesses and how we can take um, perhaps less uh, the uh, in inappropriate quality or poor quality product off the street. I presume New York State would be regulating the quality of the product through these legalized uh, sellers. It, it, it's, it's very interesting that New York State would take this move um, and yet you tell me there are zero licensed businesses who can sell. What, what's going on? Why is there a disconnect here? Well, they first had to establish the Office of Cannabis Management, which was supposed to be done a long time ago. Sorry to get excited, but it was supposed to be done a while ago. Um, Cuomo 
decided to sit on it, not to get political, but it's it's a matter of, of factual record. He decided to sit on it and use it as a political football. He wasn't going to move on it till he got something that he wanted related to a completely unrelated issue uh, involving negotiations with the MTA. So it ended up just sitting in the freezer, the, the development of this regulatory body that was necessary to get this thing started. And what uh, about Kathy Hochul? What is her position on, on this law? So when Cuomo exited stage left and Hochul came in, that was the biggest benefit to this industry that has happened so far. That's the only lucky break they've had because the second she came on board, she got started. And the office started getting staffed. They started addressing regulations. They started actually having meetings, which should be a bare minimum of a regulatory agency. Um, she was a huge benefit. So once she got on board, the ball started rolling. So at this point, we still do not even have proposed regulations for recreational sales. We are still waiting for those. And the ball, unfortunately, does still keep getting kicked down the road. You know, when we were mid-year last year, the expectation was we'd have proposed regulations by the end of the year. Then you go back two or three months, and the Office of Cannabis Management, which was now formed and holding meetings, was saying they expected to have regulations no later than the end of this winter or by March. Now, we just I just actually caught wind of it today in an informal meeting just this past week, another board member said they're actually pushing it back to they're expecting to have them by May. So it's it just seems to be a constant delay. Mm. So I, I, do I understand correctly that if I want to buy cannabis and I don't know how easy it is to get a medical prescription, but if I want to buy cannabis legally, the medical um, dispensary is my only option. Otherwise, I'm still buying on the street. Well, that's the thing is you're not committing a crime by buying on the street. That, that's uh, the trick here. That's the catch 22. I mean, oh, if you want to buy from anywhere, um, you can, you're not committing any crime. Even from someone on the street. Got it. Yep. You can go right down. If you, you know, you got a guy on the corner, you can go down and buy from him and you haven't committed any crime as long as you're within those threshold limits. Very interesting. I, I want to, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about, and certainly anyone who has questions can contact you afterwards. We could we could talk a long time about this, but I want to talk about our local Long Island ju jurisdictions because it's no surprise to anyone living here on Long Island that most of the towns and villages and um, and cities are opting out. They're they're voting to opt out of the um, the legal sale of cannabis. Um, so why are they doing this and what are some of the ramifications? What are the reasons they're doing it and what are the ramifications of their decisions? Sure, so just to lay some groundwork there, the deadline for municipalities to opt out was the end of this past year. So we do now have, it's no longer up in the air, who's gonna do what, we have a firm list. We know who's opted out, we know who's opted in. Um, for the counties that have opted out, they still have the ability to overturn that down the line and opt in versus the municipalities that have opted in no longer have the option to opt out at any point in the future. So I do believe, and it's been directly stated by a number of these municipalities, they want to see what the regulations look like before they make a decision. 
uh, and they want to reserve their rights to step back and be away from this. They can always jump back in if the regulations are uh, to their liking or, or if they see the tax revenue their neighbors are getting and change their mind. I, I think it's just about these municipalities, one, preserving their options. Two, I think it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of it was down political lines. Uh, this, you know, a lot of especially Republican led municipalities are still maintaining the party line of we don't want this in our community. And we live in the land of uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, yeah, in a lot of Long Island. But isn't it already in our communities? Aren't there people already with not only cannabis issues, but we have heroin, we have opiates, we have we have a, a major drug problem here on Long Island as well as elsewhere. So isn't this kind of, you know, putting your head in the sand? It's there. So why not, eat, one, regulate it? Number two, we're all cash strapped. Why not get revenue from it? You know, if I want to, in the town of Hempstead, if I want to, you know, to buy, I guess I can buy cannabis anywhere, you're telling me. But if I went to New York City or one of these four towns, they're making money off me. Right? Zahava, everything you've just said is the, the things that I've been screaming my head off about in the last several months. Um, you're 100% on point. And it's even more silly than you know. Because in the bill, the only thing opting out does is prevent retail dispensaries and on-site consumption facilities within your municipality. You cannot stop an otherwise qualified cultivator or processor from starting in that municipality. You can't stop a delivery business from operating in your municipality. And you can't even stop if there's a delivery business the next town over you can't stop them from delivering to your residents. So the only thing you're doing, you're not preventing it from being in your community. You're only taking away potential jobs within your town limits. And by opting out, you've removed yourself from receiving the local tax benefits of the bill. If you opt out, even if there's other cannabis related companies within your town limits, you're not collecting and getting that 9%, or I'm sorry, that 4% local tax that your uh, more forward-looking neighbors are collecting. Well, I, I think it's more than that. I look at the problems we have on Long Island and, and how young people uh, are leaving because they can't afford, not only young people, but you know, I'm looking at young people who are leaving, they cannot afford the housing and they cannot, they don't have the jobs. And the taxes are so high. And I think to myself, you know, this seems very foolish to me um, not to allow the sale because it is happening everywhere. Some of the, the uh, uh, comments, the negative comments about the sale, um, I wanted to raise with you. One is it would uh, increase the crime rate in the community. There would be more car accidents because people would be driving high. Um, the crime rate goes to not only what happens as a result of uh, drug use, but maybe break-ins, burglaries. You're, you're a criminal defense lawyer, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, yep. Also, penal code provisions, which you know are affected by these changes. Has there have there been any studies or empirical data about a change in crime rate or car accidents or any of these other consequences as a result of legalizing uh, recreational cannabis? Sure. So the only one I'm aware of was done by, and this is back when the bill that was expected to pass 
had to do with opt-outs being done by the county, not the local municipalities. There was a study done in uh, Nassau County. And now, for whatever reason, they decided the, the best group to conduct that study would be led by the Republican legislator who was the most against the bill and the chief of police. What conclusions do you think they came to? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I wonder what the police uh, department's uh, position is toward this. I mean, aren't they really wasting their time going after low-level sellers and, and possessors? I mean, don't they have, wouldn't you think that they would want to put their very, you know, uh, restricted resources into more, uh, more serious crimes? So I would think actually the police chief would be on board with this law. Are you telling me it was not that way? It is not that way. It is not that way for a couple of reasons. One of which is more controversial than the other. The one that's admitted to is just the fact that having marijuana illegal, sorry, cannabis illegal, was a, ironic, it was a gateway uh, for the police to conduct searches related to other crimes. So if you pulled somebody over and the car smelled like marijuana, you could search the car. That's no longer the case. And that was the way that they would get their foot in the door, so to speak, in a lot of their investigations. And it was also just something you could throw out there. You could say, well, why did you, why did you have suspicion of this individual? Well, he, spe- he smelled very heavily of cannabis. How are you going to disprove that later on in, in, if there's nobody around, if it's just your word versus the officers? The one, it was, it's the most common line used to justify a search under any circumstances. It's not, he was a danger. It's not, he was acting in a way that raised criminal suspicion. Oh, he smelled like cannabis. Well, bing, bang, boom, legal search. I want to understand something. Are are you saying, and and we've both been um, criminal defense attorneys and you started out actually as a uh, a DA, an assistant DA. Are, Are you saying that the police want more crimes out there that they want to um, be able, I understand the pretexts of using the cannabis smell to get in there, but they're, they're basically looking to keep their inventory of crimes high. If it's not the officers themselves, it's the trickle down of the entire way the criminal justice system is structured right now. I think that's probably above and beyond the, the topic at hand, but the right. reality is you can look at any low level crime and make the argument of it. If you're having, if the, if the end result of a, of a quote unquote crime is paying a fine, you're only punishing poor people. That's correct. That's the whole bail issue. The, the whole bail reform issue, right? You're keeping people in jail because they're, they're too poor. They don't have money to pay bail. I got it. But doesn't that also come to your social equity issue here? If the law is meant to help minorities, minority business owners, et cetera. And if we know that drug possession and um, conviction for same or arrest for same, uh, unfortunately, affects the African American community more or, or uh, communities of color more. Aren't aren't we just um, adding adding another layer? Like it doesn't seem that we're really helping those who have been affected in the past. And and one last question before I forget: What happens to people who have been convicted of possession? Uh, crimes, cannabis possession. So can you talk about the social equity, how we're not, are we really helping people who have been negatively affected and what happens to people who have prior convictions? Sure. So I do believe ultimately 
it will help people who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs in the past. And more directly to the point as to prior convictions, anybody who has a prior conviction under the 221 series only. So if you got convicted just of a marijuana offense, those crimes are going to be expunged. And can unfortunately, you explain, it, can you explain what expunged means? Thank you. It means you're going to have any record of the arrest, any association that you have with the arrest taken out of the public record. It is not going to be accessible to the public anymore. It's going to be as if that crime never took place. So if now the problem asked, is, hold on. If you're asked, have you ever been convicted of a crime? The answer after it's expunged is no. I would argue that that is the case because okay. if the, the whole purpose of expungement is it puts you in the shoes you were in before the arrest legally. So if you are asked, have you ever been convicted of a crime? I would argue that your answer is no, because, because you should be put into the shoes that you were in. Right. That affects people who are looking for jobs. And, and yep. when you answer, yes, I've been convicted of a crime, many employers will automatically disqualify you even as a candidate for employment. So that's why I asked. Oh, can I touch on that real quick? I know we're, we're running out of time, but a, a really cool part of the bill, if you're a private employer or a government employer, notwithstanding some exceptions, you cannot discriminate on applicants or employees because of their outside of work cannabis use. That is actually illegal now in New York, and it's an actionable violation. It's as if you were discriminating against them for having a disability or, or based on any of the other statutes that prohibit discrimination. Uh, there's some exceptions. Um, the most prominent one is if your company takes on any kind of federal funds that could be potentially at issue uh, because of the way the federal laws are structured. It doesn't apply. So pretty much any hospital or school, that's, that's out because they all receive federal funds under federal programs. Um, but any employer in New York is not is not allowed to discriminate against you because you maybe smoke cannabis in your off hours. Uh, they also can't drug test you for marijuana and use that as a reason for excluding you as a candidate. Wow. Um, and this then also, I did. I really wanted to put out a plug here because you raised a really great point before about people who are still sitting in jail for things that are no longer crimes and for things that the state is now funding businesses to engage in. Uh, there's a really there's a really great program out there called the Last Prisoner Project, and they are a nonprofit that is working towards getting these people who are stuck in jail for things that are no longer crimes out because of two things. One, a lot of these expungements, for whatever reason, because you have eight levels of red tape between the state and law enforcement and the DA's office and the Bureau of Prisons, that it's taking a long time to get these people out. And then secondly... If you have any other crime that's on that docket that you were convicted of that extends beyond the cannabis charge, you're not going anywhere. So if you got arrested for whatever it is, let's say you were selling cannabis at a high level and it was felony level. And then at the same time, you were convicted of maybe you had some prescription drug you weren't supposed to have at the same time. You don't qualify for expungement because it wasn't just a cannabis charge. So the Last Prisoner Project is a lot of really good people who are pushing to deal with these discrepancies and try and get the law to live up to the spirit of what it was supposed to be. Wow. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you so much for your insight and certainly uh, anyone who's interested either in opening 
uh, in applying for a license or interested in any of the issues we discussed can contact you, but your information is going to be in the minutes. And that's it for our 58th episode. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dan. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast wherever you get them. The LI Law Podcast is your source for Long Island local tips, which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.